Bonjour. Welcome to the Dexabit Data Diaries. This is your captain speaking. You're listening to the Data Diaries. Data Diaries. So who's got the best voice? Nice. Yes. <laughs> I'm here today with the one and only John Falk, who's recognised as one of the most influential museum professionals of the past hundred years, Director of the Institute for Learning and Innovation and C Grant Professor of Free Choice Learning at Oregon State University. John formerly held a number of senior positions at the Smithsonian. He has authored over 200 scholarly articles and chapters in the field, as well as more than two dozen books, including The Museum Experience Revisited. He is the leading global authority on free choice learning, being the learning that we do when we have a choice over what, where, and when we learn like we do in museums. John, it's a privilege to have you here today. What's life like in your part of the world at the moment? Thank you, Angie. It is a pleasure to be with you today. It's quite lovely today, and the sun is shining, and spring is springing, so all is good in the world. And diving straight in, how does who we are in terms of how we identify what drives us, our preferences, our decisions, and all of that good stuff, how does that affect our experience as visitors? All of us have what has been variously described as an identity or a sense of self. And that is a very plastic way in which we intersect and interact with the world, the lens with which we view the world. And so we think of ourselves as big and strong. We may not be, but if we think of ourselves as big and strong, we we interact with the world accordingly. And if we think of the world ourselves as small and weak or short, even if uh, we're taller than everybody else and stronger than everybody else, we interact with the world accordingly. And of course, we get feedback about this. And, th- and these lenses are really important. Typically, people in museums focus on whether people learn, whether people are socially engaged, whether people are enjoying themselves and having a good time. And all of those, in fact, are, of course, important. Those are the actions, the ways in which we interact with the world. Whether we are learning or whether we are enjoying ourselves, and quite frankly, the ways in which we learn and enjoy ourselves are totally influenced by that sense of identity in ourself. And so how we present ourselves to others, as well as how others present themselves to us, are seen through that lens. And all that sounds strange and esoteric, but it has tremendous impact on how people behave in museums, why people go to museums, and ultimately how we can interact with people in museums, which is what I discovered when I really tried to sit down and understand something about why it was that people went to museums. Superficially, they went to learn or to have a good social time, but fundamentally what they were doing was trying to express some aspect of their identity, that identity of being a good parent or a good companion or the identity of being a curious interested person who wants to find out more about the world and therefore is using museums to satisfy those needs. And as I will talk further about it, there's actually another layer of the onion, as it were, even below identity. So John, if our identity is centric to how we experience our visit, what matters most when it comes to understanding visitors and their experiences? Is it demographics? Is it motivations or behaviors? How do you 
quantify that? I guess if I had to pick, I'd say motivations, but ultimately it's not so simple. It's truly a matter of lived experience. Our identity is a function of our lived experience, and that lived experience includes our genetics, but it also includes our culture, and of course it includes our individual past realities. And if you really want to understand visitors, you can't understand them exclusively by demographics, and you can't ex understand them exclusively by motivations, and you're certainly not going to totally understand them by how they behave. You really need to look at some combination of these factors. For example, I've been working recently with a museum in the Netherlands. It's called the Museum Katharina Convent in Utrecht. And as they are trying to reimagine their institution, they've used a mix of traditional demographics plus identity-related motivations, as well as understanding and talking to people about how they behave and how they've reacted to the specific things they see and do in the museum. And so the short answer is it's not either or, but all of the above. And so how do you balance qualitative versus quantitative views of the world when you're thinking about those visitors? How do you bring those two worlds together? Again, I think it's not an either or, but a both end. I, I know personally, I have strived to collect data and understand visitors and museum users, both qualitatively and quantitatively. The quantitative data allows you to make generalizations, the quality data allows you to actually understand what those generalizations might mean to a person or an individual. And so really, it's not about whether one is better than the other. They both are important and different perspectives. The reality is when you're trying to understand something as complex as people, and particularly how people interact and behave and are motivated to behave in a place like a museum, that's really complex. And all of the tools we use give us sort of a partial view. And so the more different views we can get, the better. I love that way of thinking about things, of using the quantitative to gain a generalization of an audience and using the qualitative to understand the individual. That's a really powerful way to think about things. From your perspective, how has that thinking about visitor experience in either of those worlds, in terms of people why people do or don't visit a museum and then what they do when they get there and then what they might get out of their visit in terms of their outcomes. How has all of that evolved over the last three decades? Yes, I will answer that question by basically talking about my journey. I'll talk about a 50-year journey of trying to understand why people go to museums, what they do there and what they take away from them. Like most people early on, I was influenced by the prevailing narratives about museums as first and foremost educational institutions, which if you go back to the latter part of the 20th century, not all, but most people in museums were becoming to the appreciation that museums were more than just stuff and objects, but they were really there to serve a purpose. And there seemed to be broad consensus among many that primary purpose was educational, although obviously uh, not everybody totally agreed with that. There are some who felt that primary goal of museums was, for example, aesthetic appreciation or a broader understanding of the world or facilitating curiosity and helping people understand more about themselves and their position in the world. Some even argued that 
the primary goal of museums was social and being a place where people could come together, have conversations, and learn more, more about themselves and their place and, and their fellow humans. All of those are reasonable, but those, again, as I would suggest, and I spent a good part of time trying to figure out how to measure and quanti quantitatively and qualitatively understand those kinds of outcomes. But then about 15, 20 years ago, I appreciated that those outcomes actually, those were the museum's outcomes. Those weren't necessarily the user's outcome, the visitor's outcome. Museums were means to an end. What was that end? And when I started thinking in those terms, that's when I hit upon this notion of identity, that actually people were using museums to build and express their own identity. And because of how we as have come to view museum support, have affordances is the psychobabble term. People use museums and see museums as, as serving particular needs. They're places you can go to learn. They're places where I can go with my kids and have great social experiences. They're places where I can see wonders of human and natural creation, be that a natural history museum or an art museum. And so I use those affordances, I use those things that museums provide me in order to serve my needs, which are identity-related needs. And that seemed to be a reasonable explanation, except the more I thought about it over the last five, six years, I've appreciated that there's another layer that lies below that yet. That identity, too, is a means to an end. It's not an end. We have a sense of self. We have an identity for a purpose. And that purpose isn't just so that we can navigate through the world, but we navigate through the world in order to enhance our survival. That ultimately, all living creatures, including humans, are on this earth in order to satisfy one single requirement, if you believe in evolution. And that evolution is to survive, to get through today so I can live another day. And if I can't live another day, then maybe I should spread my either my genes or my ideas, which are another way of persisting in time, so that some part of me persists ideally forever, either genetically or intellectually or in some way. And so this is what I would call well-being. And although well-being has been hijacked by the positive psychologists and some pop psychologists, and people talk about well-being in terms of happiness and all that, that too is but a manifestation of well-being. Fundamentally, well-being is a, is a basic biological need to do things that promote your survival and avoid things get in the way of survival. So COVID-19 is a great example. We've done a whole lot of things as societies, as individuals, to try and stay healthy and avoid getting COVID-19 because we have pretty good sense that if we get this disease, it's not going to be particularly good for our well-being, i.e. our long-term survival. So identity is used in the service of well-being and whether the actions we take, the choices we make, be they vac being vaccinated or wearing a mask or going to a museum, are manifestations of our identity. So I've become quite fixated of late in trying to understand how museums support well-being. And now getting back to your original question, over 30, 40, 50 years of studying this, the interesting thing is that the data hasn't changed, but my interpretation of that data has. So 
Over 30 years ago, I started asking people, so tell me about a museum experience you had in the past. And I've continued to ask people those questions for more than 30 years. The stories that people tell me have not changed. But 30 years ago, I interpreted those stories through my own lens of primarily learning or perhaps social engagement. And then about 15 years ago, I started reinterpreting those same stories through the lens of identity. And now I'm interpreting those same stories through the lens of enhanced well-being. Fundamentally, what museums provide is a mechanism that allows people to enhance their well-being. That is why fundamentally, even though people don't think of it in that way, that's why people go to museums, that's how people use museums, and that's ultimately the value that people take away from these experiences. Wow, John, that is an incredible journey through one of the most central topics to our existence of how our identity, our ideas, our interpretation, how all of that weaves together into our journeys professionally and personally. Thank you. And I'm glad that you mentioned the importance of well-being to humanity and the part that plays even in a pandemic. Just the other day on social media, someone was telling me off for supporting museums during COVID because in their view it wasn't important. And and that sort of really struck at the at my core of my being because I think that it is at times like these that not just health and existence, but also culture and what sort of brings us together as a society is so important to our our society into our future. Can you tell me through COVID and as we think about that future post-pandemic, how has all of this changed things for you in this world and and what shifts in our thinking around the visitor and their experience are here to stay? Well, I have been thinking a lot about this as I think many of the ideas that I'm talking about here are incorporated into this new book that I'm working on, which has a working title of the value of museums, counting for societal well-being. And for more than 20 years, I've been concerned about the future of museums. I perceived back in the end of the 20th century that this was a train wreck waiting to happen, that the fundamental business model of museums and the long-term sustainability of this of what they've been doing was in jeopardy. Over the first decades of the 20th century, as actually total number of visits, level of support for museums has begun to level off. Others, as well as I, have you know begun to at least talk about these problems. What COVID has helped to do is accelerate, if that's help. It has accelerated the problems. It's accelerated the likelihood of that train wreck. It is estimated that perhaps as many as a third of all museums worldwide will not recover from COVID and will permanently close their doors. And so really in the immortal words of Stephen Wise, how do we help convince people that museums are not just niceties, but necessities? And that's a lot what I've been trying to figure out is how do you define the value of these institutions and then define them in a way that has credibility? Credibility is the big question. Value is comparative. I compare this to that. It's great that you say that 
all these kids went to a museum, for example, and learned all this stuff. But don't they learn stuff when they go to school? It's great that you say that museums provide wonderful places and you can show me data that parents bond with their children when they go to museums. But don't they bond with their kids when they take them to the park? So how do I know that this is any better or any worse for that matter than any other thing that we support? And I know that there are other things that I know we think are important. And the reason I think they're important is because I can put a dollar value on them. And whether we like to believe it or not, we live in a consumer society and we place value on things based on what we think they are financially worth. By the way, the issue is not the absolute dollar value. So it doesn't matter whether it's $100 or a million dollars. What matters is comparative. And so what I have really focused on over the last year is not only defining the ultimate value that museums generate, namely well-being, enhanced well-being, but I've also figured out ways to directly measure that enhanced well-being, to put real numbers, quantitatively numbers on those that are valid and reliable. And even more importantly, I've figured out how to put a dollar value on those enhanced well-being numbers. To take this thing, which is inherently intangible, internal, qualitative value, enhanced well-being, and measure quantitatively what the dollar value of that is. And I'm here to tell you that enhanced well-being is worth a lot of money, and museums create a lot of it, and they're worth a lot of money. A couple things to keep in mind is that when I'm talking about enhanced well-being, again, remember I'm using my own very specifically biological definition of enhanced well-being. And for those who are really serious nerds, I'll give a shameless plug to a book that I wrote a few years ago called Born to Choose, Evolution, Self, and Well-Being that lays out the theoretical foundations for how these notions of the evolutionary basis of identity and well-being. So building on this most recent book takes those ideas and says that museums support, for simplicity, four dimensions of well-being, personal well-being, intellectual well-being, social well-being, and physical well-being. And the good news is, although we have not spent a lot of time thinking about measuring enhanced well-being, we have 20 years, 15, 20 years of good data that shows why people go to museums and what benefits they derive from them. And lo and behold, they derive those benefits. People say, when I went to the museum, I learned an awful lot and I can give you examples of what I learned. I can tell you how I had increased my sense of knowing more about myself and my place in the world. That being personal well-being. I had this sense of wonder and awe. That's personal well-being. The first example about learning, that's intellectual well-being. I now have a better sense of, I actually learned how current works. And therefore, I can now, when I had to replace a light bulb, I had a better sense of how, or actually the case in point was that a woman who talked about how when she went to the Museum of Science in London, there was an exhibit on how locks work. And two years later, her lock didn't work. But she remembered that exhibit and then was able to think about how to fix her lock because of learning what she learned at the uh, Science Museum in London. That's long-term intellectual enhanced well-being. Social well-being, the sense of the good feelings you get from being able to spend quality time with your children and having that quality time last for days and weeks and months as you continue to have conversations with your children after a visit to a museum that's social well-being and then ultimately the feeling that people get 
of decompressing, of recharging, of being able to go to a place that's quiet and away from the, the humdrum of the daily world. That's worth real, that has real value to people. And you can actually quantify that value of decompression and how long that lasts. And so using those kinds of indices that have already been created, I could actually measure how much well-being and for how long this lasted for people. But the insight I had was that people who have tried to measure and monetize museum experiences in the past have consistently undervalued museums. And there's some good methodological reasons for that. Some of that is they haven't been able to actually define what they're looking for, haven't been able to ask people the right questions, haven't appreciated that you have to ask that question not as people are walking out the door of a museum because they actually don't know what the long-term value of this is. You have to wait some time to be able to assess that value. But a significant bias in terms of monetization has been for better, for worse, we live in a society where people assign value based on cost. So if something costs $10, I assume that must be worth $10. But as the great financial guru Warren Buffett said, price is what you pay, value is the benefit you derive. And the benefit exceeds the cost because museums have long been motivated to keep their admission prices low. Museums are disproportionately subsidized by government and other kinds of grants and gifts. And they're also motivated as public institutions for accessibility and access and equity reasons to try and keep their prices as low as possible. So in the United States, for example, the average admission price of a museum is $10, but that is not the value that people derive. But if you ask people, what they value, what the value of that experience is as they're in the museum, or if you say, what is the value of the museum visit you just had, they will assume that there's an equivalent value to the price. And so they will consistently undervalue that. So in order to collect valid data, you actually have to separate those questions and independently ask people, so how much is two weeks worth of quality time with your child worth? How much is a week's worth of feeling calm and decompressed from your job worth? What's that worth to you? What is it? What would it be worth to you if you could have an experience where you gained some significant insight about yourself and that experience lasted an hour, a day, a week, several weeks? What would each of those be worth to you? People can answer those questions. And then you can combine those two sets of data and come up with what I think is a more fair assessment of the true value of museum experiences. And that's exactly what I've done. And you can calculate that for individuals. And if you calculate that for enough individuals, you can then generalize and extrapolate that data to all the individuals who may have had that experience at a museum over the course of a year. And with that data, you can say the overall value then of the museum experiences offered by this institution would be this dollar value. And how much did it actually cost that institution? What was their overall budget? What was their cost to deliver that value to the public? And with those two pieces of information, you can calculate a return on investment. So if it generated X tens of millions of dollars and it cost a million dollars to bring that experience to the public, then that return on investment 
is whatever that difference is, tenfold, hundredfold, whatever it is. And that's what I've done. It's fascinating, John. You, you mentioned before the difficulty of finding valid and reliable measures yes. for some of these things. And I, I know that engagement as a visitor outcome, it's a notoriously hard concept of visitor experience to try and put metrics around we can do our best when we think about things like conversion rates and space exposure and dwell times and review scores and commentary themes and things but if you can measure that does that mean that you can monetize it can you go as far as putting a dollar value on that museum experience or the cultural institution as a whole? And is there even benefit in doing that in the first place? I would certainly suggest you probably could do it, but I don't advise that you do do it. Because again, things like how much time somebody spends, dwell time, whether you decide whether they're showed up and just numbers don't mean anything. You need to combine both those numbers, but ultimately with what's really important is what was the impact. Again, in the evaluation jargon, the distinction is made between outputs and outcome. So how many visitors showed up and how long they spent, that's an output. That's not an outcome. You could spend hours, but if nothing happened, that had no value. I could go there for five minutes and have the most amazing epiphany. And that's worth an enormous amount. It, it's If I was a department store and I wanted to know whether I was a successful department store and I judged my success by how many people walked by my display window and looked in the front and looked at the window, that's irrelevant. The question is whether looking in the window affected anything. Did anybody walk in the store then and actually buy anything? And did they buy enough for me to make a profit? That's an outcome. So oh, you can measure those things and they may be indicators of something. Unless you can directly tie them to important outcomes, then you're wasting your time. So I skipped those indicators and went straight to the outcomes, enhanced well-being. So if you can measure enhanced well-being, why would you bother measuring dwell times? What's important is whether anybody got anything out of an exhibit, not whether they spent time in it or not. And so using the approach that I'm advocating at the moment, I think actually gives you more valid, more useful data down the road. And these things, I believe, can be monetized. And the value of monetizing them is now you can say, remember you had those examples. I'm even willing to give you, to put two hours spent at a museum against two hours spent in any classroom. And I'll give you some specific examples. So, for example, and all these numbers come from the U.S., so you can take this with a grain of salt. But in U.S. dollars, across the six institutions, six museums that I studied, the average dollar outcome of enhanced well-being that a museum experience generated, and this is looking at about 500 individuals across six different museums, that was about $425 of benefit. Now, remember, the average admission cost may have been $10 or $20 or even $40 for an adult, but they're getting $425 of benefit. That's a 40,000% return on investment, which is not bad. In fact, that's amazing. But how does that compare to other experiences? What about education? That gets a little more challenging, but typically the way, for example, higher education, secondary education has been 
calculated is by extra earning power. Now, that's a dubious measure because there are a lot of other factors that determine how much you're going to earn over the course of your life besides whether you graduate from high school or not. But let's suspend disbelief and say that's fair. So it's been estimated that graduating from high school, each year of high school is worth $6,500 of additional earning power per year over your lifetime. Okay, there are 1,200 hours of schooling in a school year, again in the U.S. So that works out to about $5 an hour of benefit. So for every hour you spend in high school, you stand to earn an extra $5 over the course of your life. Well, how does that stack up to $425 of benefit from a going to a museum for a couple hours? That's not bad. That's not bad. Again, you can quibble about some of these measures because it's not truly an apples to apples measure. But on an order of magnitude, that's giving you a sense that dollar for dollar, um, actually spending a couple hours in a museum is worth an awful lot as opposed to just spending an extra hour in the classroom. So why should you send kids on a field trip? Actually, they're getting probably a hundred times the value for that one day of going to a museum than they get for that one extra day in a classroom. Now that, I believe, is a powerful answer. It is indeed, John. Thank you. And like many other topics these days, I think that this question of whether museums should be run like a business, it's it's a very polarizing one. It's got a very vocal protest group on either side. But I think there has to be some reasonableness in that position that I think the question is more which aspects of the museum should and to what degree should they be professionalized as they are in the for-profit world in order to sustain our sector, as you mentioned earlier, is under such pressure uh, with COVID-19. What's your take on that? Again, I I tend to be a cut the baby in half kind of guy. It's, let's, let's lay out some first principles here. The business world has the for-profit world. Clearly, they would like to pretend that their goal in life is to make people's lives better. But the reality is that's not what they're in business for. They're in business to make money. And in that regard, museums clearly are not like for-profit businesses and can't be run like for-profit businesses because they have a different set of outcomes, a different set of goals. They really are trying to, in my words, enhance people's well-being. On the other hand, without money, you can't fulfill your mission. So you may have the grandest goals as an institution, but if you have no finances, if you can't keep staff because you have no payroll money, then you can't fulfill your mission. So it doesn't matter what your goals are. Without income, you have no institution. So you need to be run as a business, but not as a for-profit business. So somewhere in there is reality. You have to create this both-end world. And so the the folks who have brought business people onto their boards and turned over the management of their organizations to businesses have been disasters because they don't understand the mission of museums. But so have been the institutions that have been run purely for the notion of aesthetic ideals or lofty goals, and then they go bankrupt. Neither of those are a great strategy. So somewhere, a middle ground has to be found where your bottom line is as important as your outcomes Because without your bottom line being positive, you have no outcomes. But without 
positive outcomes, it doesn't matter if you have a positive bottom line because you haven't accomplished what you've set to accomplish. It doesn't say what you should do, but it certainly suggests what you can't do, is it can't be either or. It has got to be both end. I love that answer, John, that holding the bottom line and the visitor outcomes together, that you need to be run as a business, just not as a for-profit business because of our mission as museums and the rest just being reality. That's an excellent way to put it. I'll have to borrow that one for the future. You mentioned earlier that you've got a new book on the way about the value of the museum experience. When should we expect that? I wish I could tell you tomorrow, but it won't be. It could be out as early as the end of this late 2021. It'll definitely be out by early 2022. So end of the year, beginning of next is when you can expect this book out. And it does not have an official title yet, but the working title is The Value of Museum Experiences, Accounting for Societal Well-Being. One way or another, museum experiences, value, and well-being are going to be in the title. But what the exact mix is, I am still arm wrestling with the publisher over. Hmm. I can't wait for that latest installment. John, thank you so much for sharing this perspective on museums and experience and value and enhanced well-being with us here today. It's been a breath of fresh air. And, and thank you for taking us all on this journey of the last few decades of your knowledge and thinking in the field. You're very welcome. And thank you for asking these questions and giving me an opportunity to talk about these. Needless to say, I'm a little passionate about it. But I think (laughs) the museum community has the potential for a great future, but it's going to require some work. Some assembly is required and perhaps some disassembly. Wonderful. Thank you so much, John. You're welcome.